Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we're joined by Stuart Hicks, Assistant Professor of Architecture at the University of Illinois at Chicago and co-founder of Design with Company, a practice he leads with Allison Neumeyer in Chicago. Design with Company's work focuses on how literature and architecture intersect through fiction, character, type, or metaphor, and how these themes can translate into installations, speculative urban scenarios, temporary pavilions, and designs for buildings. Stewart's practice has participated in notable projects such as Porch Parade, a temporary urban plaza located in downtown Vancouver, Canada, and Shaw Town, a temporary outdoor theater designed for the Ragdale Foundation. You can find images of those projects and other works by Design with Company on our website and Instagram feed. On today's site visit, we're going to discuss our recent trip to the Mananak Building, one of Chicago's most notable towers. This episode was recorded live in Design with Company's office, which is located on the building's 14th floor. Erected in 1893, the Mananak Building, designed by two notable Chicago architecture firms, Burnham and & Root and Hollibird and & Roche, is considered the world's tallest load-bearing brick building. The building is prolific in terms of the revolutionary technology employed in its construction, one of the signature contributions of Chicago's historical architecture. Other notable structures located within proximity to the tower include the Harold Washington Library, designed by Thomas Beebe, the Arts Institute of Chicago, and Millennial Park. The Mananak Building has evolved into an icon for the city, with its purple-brown brick, thickened street-level walls, and limited ornamentation serving as its key characteristics. Stewart's passion for the building has played a key role throughout his work, and particularly his interest in architectural legibility and how the public engages with architecture. We began by asking Stewart to explain why he chose to move his office into the Mananak building and how the building has come to represent such an important precedent within the profession. I mean, there's a whole host of things that make it important to us or convenient for us. Um, One is, yeah, it's it's located downtown, but it's kind of south. So when it was built, it was very at the fringes of what would be considered Chicago. And so Mm -hmm. people were nervous about it being successful because it was so far south. Now Chicago is kind of, it's part of the loop, but the loop wasn't really there then. But for us, um, it's just right on the blue line, which is connects to UIC where we teach and um, downtown. So it's just two stops down. So we also live right off of a blue line stop. And so the mm-hmm. most pragmatic reason <laughs> is that it's really easy to get to uh, for us. So we can just walk outside and come come here. It's a fantastic like environment. I think what's fascinating about it is that it it comes with its own kind of aura you hear like yeah. Manadnock and like <laughs> I, I I it would never occur to me that you could even have an office here right yeah. so starting at the street where because it's so big and you were ma- you were you were talking to us about this really interesting thing about how the foundation works mm-hmm. because the most striking thing from the street is the piers mm-hmm. these enormous like six foot deep piers that mm-hmm. make each of the corners um, but yeah if you could talk a little bit about the the 
the foundation and just like the experience of the building from the street. We were also earlier talking about the the library building and its sense of scale yeah. and sort of massiveness at the base. And when BB presents that building, he talks about it as being um, trying to channel the language of uh, commercial architecture in Chicago, which is really where all the innovation happened into a kind of civic kind of uh, architecture. And so there, the massiveness at the base is created by having vertical circulation and um, stairways and things tucked into that really thick facade. Um, Here, obviously, it's there for a kind of structural need. And here, there's so many great design moves that actually dissolve the experience of the heaviness and weightiness and and kind of curate when it feels heavy and when it feels light versus in the BB example, it like feels very heavy kind of all the time. You know, it's like trying to be heavy and it feels heavy versus here. I think it's a really delicate balance of it's a six foot pier, but you only experience that six feet on the outside mm-hmm. um, because the, well, it actually kind of goes back and forth. So there's windows that are punched in that where the window sits on the inside of that six feet and then other windows where it sits on the outside. And so it's kind of like at street level, you're getting both at the same time. And then when you're on the inside, there's uh, windows, there's that, this kind of internal street that cuts right through the inside of the building. And then there's windows on the either side of that aisle and then which align to windows that are on the outside. And so it, it almost feels like you're outside when you're inside the building or it feels like a, a kind of street that's been covered over or something like that because you're connected to all this retail space, but you're inside an office building and it, it feels weighty because I think by today's standards of how we expect something to be lit, it's a little bit darker than we would, would be used to. Um, but those are kind of period fixtures of being the first, uh, electrified office building and uh but a lot of the light comes from the sides and so the the experience is this i think really uh complex relationship between the massiveness of it versus a kind of connection to the to the street life uh and be able to kind of have both at the same time i think yeah and it's maybe an important thing to note too um that it's it's really long and skinny. So yeah. This, yeah. You know, this is how it, it works. It's a, the right. footprint of the building. So we were talking about how big it is and how massive it is. And it, and it is all of those things. Um, but in comparison to maybe what was built at that time also, um, compared to tower that would be built today or even now right. the surrounding towers are it's one of the shorter towers on the street of course um, right. but at that time it would have it would have seemed incredibly tall but the plate is never really that deep that's the amazing thing about mm-hmm. it I, yeah. I i think that's the way you're describing it is exactly right because it's this beautiful interplay between the heavy and the light and it's all because of that massing so it looks quite it has a strong presence in the street. I mean, yeah. it feels we were describing it though. When you turn the corner and see its length along the block, it looks right. like a big brick ocean liner just right. kind of like sitting there. And because it's so thin, um, and that was really unexpected for me. Like the lobby space, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was basically like a, it's like an arcade, mm-hmm. you know. And, and and every storefront that's along the street has a secondary storefront right. facing on the inside, and that permeability continues on every floor, right? Because uh, it's really fascinating when we get up here and see that here we are at your office and there's a kind of frosted, not quite frosted. It's some kind like of feather chipped or something. Like feather chipped. Yeah. 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 It's a beautiful pattern. Right. Beautiful casework. Like, uh, mm-hmm. 
and it it keeps everything light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also this. We're looking. We're looking at a picture of the sort of looking up the north facade of the building, and one thing that I found really fascinating is that there's this perception that the 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 walls are physically thicker at the bottom than they are at the top, but that thickness actually changes on the interior and not on the exterior. But there's this perception that the thickness changes on the exterior because of the way the corners are tram- chamfered. Yeah. So they're chamfered more at the top than they are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So when you are looking at the building at an angle, it appears to mm-hmm. um, taper toward yeah. the top, but it doesn't. It's just that yeah. chamfer changing, um, which is a, another, I think, really s- small design move that really mm-hmm. challenges your perception of the thickness or whether that like again we're looking at that facade and when the windows bow out the windows go up against the face but when the uh window is just kind of cut into the flat part of the building it's uh the window goes back and so it, it's again that kind of like mm-hmm. it's this like surface of windows which dive in and out of uh the kind of either side of the thickness of the the brick This, this kind of conversation about the attenuation of the facade is it's interesting to hear you describe it because I think it's so important um, in your guys' work in terms of like the kind of the character that's implied by that kind of sculpting mm-hmm. uh, of the exterior. Um, it's it's something that I think you know looking at looking at your work like uh, it. It makes a lot of sense that you would have that kind of sensitivity. <laughs> it just really interests me because I just can't... There's a lot of buildings in the city I just can't imagine your office being in. Because <laughs> it seems like um, you guys uh, respond so strongly to the kind of implied yeah. narratives that right, are built right, into... And right, this is right. just a place that you can't escape that at all. It's like right. stepping into another world. Uh-huh. And part yeah. of that is like a, to- a totalizing world where everything is kind of considered and everything yeah. is part of uh, building a world. There's right. nothing really normative happening. And in the Monadnock building, that I think that happens on the street. Like, you yeah. know, on the street, even yeah. before you enter the building. Right. It's bigger than its footprint. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It feels bigger. It Also, the color, the red color of the bricks. It's like yeah. this kind of maroonish, dark. Um, it doesn't even look... From far away, you can't really tell it's brick. It looks almost right. like a solid color, so you're not really sure if it's painted or right. what exactly that is. And then you get closer and you realize that it's actually bricks. And right. maybe one reason it does that is because you were um, telling us earlier that there's very little mortar or if yeah. any mortar between the bricks on the lower level right. um, for structural reasons. And so um, then when you walk into the lobby, you're you're completely encased in marble. Right. <laughs> marble floor, marble wall, mar- marble ceiling, you know, mm-hmm. another kind of totalizing world of materiality, color even. Right. Um, yeah, the lighting, it's a lot of natural light, but then even the artificial light is very yellowy. Right. Um, again, to, to reference a historical time period but yeah i think that's really interesting take on it like i think i think you're right i think that that's something that really draws us in is that the it's more than a building it's a world right and it's this i mean it has to do with time and timeliness and timelessness um because you know it's been restored painstakingly but i think time is just a component of that i don't think it's about transporting you to the 1920s or something like it's it's not even theme parky it's really genuine we we've done we this kind of side projects of researching midwestern attractions and so many of those 
are able to produce an identity for a whole place just by one or two people's love of something. And then kind of that love building a collective uh, experience and building a collective love for something, even if it's brief and people come and, and go and, you know, it's about cheese or it's about corn or it's about whatever. And I feel like the Monadnock works like that, um, whether it was intended to or not. The current owner, it's, you know, Bill Donnell just loves this building and painstakingly it's a, it's a living experiment. You know, it's, it's constantly changing, even though it, it takes a really trained eye to see what the differences are. But when we walked around earlier, we looked at early restoration attempts and later restoration attempts and the difference of effects of the materiality or the, the reflectivity of marble or whether it's how reflective it is or how thin the, the casework is and how detailed it is produces vastly different effects, but through very minor changes which all are really important, but you don't, you can talk about the building as this kind of historic preservation project, or you can talk about it, this totalizing world where those really important tectonic decisions are all to some larger effect of creating this world. It's not about tectonics for tectonics sake or something like that, or some sort of truth and materiality or anything. Yeah. like it's about constructing this, this reality. And I think that that's, at least that's the way I, I feel it when I'm here, and yeah. I would read it. Uh, I don't know if everyone would read it that way, but I mean, you guys feel it too when you're here. You 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 get the sense that this is um, a kind of world building exercise, which comes to the curation of the retailers on the street mm -hmm. level. You know, there's no um, you know chain stores or anything down there. It's all mom and pop shops, and we we're talking earlier too about how they all it's all viable you know this building makes money those retailers make money um and it's it's this weird thing it's like it's not quite nostalgic like it is nostalgic but it's also fully participatory in the economy today and it's not like etsy or something like it doesn't feel crafty it, it, it has its own thing where it's genuine but it's also um kind of um theatrical and, and thin in certain places, but it's okay because it's all producing a larger effect. It's not the kind of performance of a store which might have been originally in the building. It's actually a, right. a store which people are currently shopping in. It just happens to sell similar things that, that right. were originally. Right. It's not like store. Greenfield Village, which is near yeah. you guys, which, you know, is this kind right. of construction of where like the, the effect of, going to that world would be killed if somebody broke character, right? Like yeah, it's right. such a fragile world building strategy versus this one, which can sit in the middle of a city and participate in that city and be robust enough that people can step in and step out and it won't be broken. And I think that that's pretty, pretty amazing. I think it's really remarkable. You were showing us the examples that the owner has like basically like turned this into a, a laboratory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is not about yeah recreating some kind of you know uh, precise reconstruction. It's more about just like um, how do I kind of make things immersive with this mm -hmm. very simple palette. So we went to one floor where um, the marble is uh, not doesn't stop at a kind of lower rail. It goes all the way to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And you were noting the reflectivity mm -hmm. of that matching the feathered glass. And it, mm -hmm. it's kind of a 
it's the same hallway in every kind of dimension and in a plan you would never understand how it would be different but it performs completely differently mm-hmm. there was also like the place at the end of the hallway where a mirror had been inserted to right. kind of double uh, the effect and it just seems like yeah there's this like careful curation of um, working in, in a really kind of elemental way like yeah. very very strict um, and I think that also like is something that I'm curious about and how it might relate uh to your work because I think that you guys also have like your own elements. I think they're mm-hmm. you know they're not material, they're they're formal. Mm-hmm. But you have a very kind of you know, kind of expanding repertoire of projects that are mm-hmm. about kind of like the calibration of elements mm-hmm. and how they come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just I wanted to like talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit in terms of like how you guys approach um, that methodology. I mean, I think that that's the lesson we wanted to learn when we came to Chicago was what you talked about, like how we can world build and use narrative in some form, but then have that drive decisions about materiality and tectonics and and have something so saturated that you can you can move between scales and operate in a similar capacity. But um and that, that, yeah, that's the lesson we want to learn. And I think that um, in our first project we ever did, um, f- uh, which was the animal farmatures and the farmland world, those um, used uh, techniques of defamiliarization and through very literal, like it looks like a cow, uh, and it, but it's too big, uh, and there's too many, like there's, um, it's very literal in its, uh, form, but then tries to play with other parameters to defamiliarize it and, and make it anew. Um, and so this question of, of levels of abstraction, um, has always been really, really difficult for us, not difficult, but like at the forefront of what yeah. we're trying to figure out. And, um, and I think in each project we'll we'll go back and forth, like um, you know, like with our porch parade project or something. Like it's very important to us that those were recognizable as porches, being in the context of a downtown uh, Vancouver. So this idea that you could have um, uh, an authentic porch-like experience uh, through things that look like porches, but they're also subtly abs- they're abstracted too. They're not exactly porches. They're um, you, you know, at 50 feet, they're definitely a porch. But when you go in, they're, they're too flat. You know, they're a little too um, stage-like uh, to quite be a porch. And so that sort of repertoire of stuff, I think, is us really trying to calibrate, like, what at what level um, are people making their own stories out of the stuff we're providing. You know, um, sometimes it requires it to look like a cow uh, and be in, in, a, in, a, in the wrong location or wrong size. But then other times it can be like in our one of our late, more recent projects we did uh, for Metropolis Magazine, which was for um, they do this uh, new talent where they sh- there's this fur- large furniture fair in the mart called Neocon. And so it's a pretty corporate kind of um, corporate furniture fair. And Metropolis wants to uh, make these little temporary things on the first floor that kind of stand apart and make, uh, you know, that are um, bold enough to, you know, be contrasting to what's happening around it, but also kind of fit in. And so in our late- latest project, it ended up being a, a giant, letter T, uh, was the mass. Um, 
but we got the the letter form was not what that just came because of the site actually we needed a small footprint and a big top <laughs> and then we treated it you know we we treated the thing this kind of wrapping paper of uh framed images and the frames kind of wrap around the form as if it were an image but they're frames that have to follow it and so like that form is is abstract um, but it's also a t it also kind of looks like an animal from certain places uh you know it looks like things that it isn't um and yeah i think that that calibration of legibility abstraction literalness is something that we're always like trying to figure out and toy with and in our projects we were having this conversation over breakfast too about like our um our collective desire for legibility and um audience engagement um i think because of our hit, the, the evolution of our firm, we started doing uh, by doing competitions, where you produce an image that allows people to reimagine their own prompt, in a, and it has to be bold in image form, uh, and it needs to prompt people to think about that space that they know and love and walk by every day and could see it in a different way. And so we, that's how we think because we've started that way. You know, we, we make an image that, that is bold, uh, and through layered, um, experiences with the thing starts to build complexity and understanding, but that you get it right away. Mm -hmm. Like that there's that, that one liner or that chuckle or whatever that, um, you know, if we talk about like critical architecture or something, you know, it hurts like you don't get it right away, but then you appreciate it through time. We want you to think you get something right away and then either challenge it or reinforce it through layered experiences. And I think that comes from competitions um, and and kind of trying to create an image that strikes people, but then doesn't stop there. That doesn't just kind of like get stuck at image. And so with the competition stuff, um, we found ourselves like having to build the image, which is problematic for us. Like, there's no process there of how the constructed thing is actually more than an image. And right. so when it, when you win a competition like that, you just have to build it right away for no money and there's no opportunity to like really refine it. And so when we're starting working with clients, it's a lot of fun to be able to develop it and um, just test more things and uh, ha- have, have there be a process. things of architecture which is yeah. you get to make a thing build it put out in the world and see some reaction right yeah. like right. People, people are going to see it look at it use it be in it um like the the architects of the Monadnock building could never imagine that three architects are going to be sitting here doing a podcast talking about how much we love this building you right. know so i'm curious in your maybe in the in the ragdale project because a lot of your work is specifically about public engagement right and so the ragdale project you did as a pavilion or kind of outdoor pavilion for um theater space theater right. acts um the project that you did in toronto 
Vancouver. Vancouver. So yeah, yeah. The project you did it's in Vancouver, <laughs> um, you know, is about like inviting people to a front porch in yeah. a, in a city, and it's all about being outside and interacting with you know neighbors. Um, so, what are I mean, how how are those projects received by those people in a in a way that surprised you, or in a way that um, you might actually kind of bring something back into the work, a new perspective? A, yeah. Um. One thing, I mean, there's I think there is like anecdotal small superficial answers yeah. to that and I think that there's maybe deeper ones I and mean, like the superficial one is um, when we started working there was no Instagram uh, but now there is and we could follow the evolution of our projects as people would take photos of it and how they'd be using it and so just that was really fascinating it seems um, now like being Instagrammable is comes with the territory but it was a profound thing for us to be able to track how something was getting used through through an image source that you could see that. Like, that's not normal. Like, or it wasn't normal. It was like, it was hard to do before, and now it's really easy. Yeah. It's so commonplace now that nobody thinks about it, but it really was enlightening to us. Um, and so we started to make hashtags for projects and stuff, not because we wanted to be Instagrammable, but because we wanted to track how audiences were engaging it and, and finding new uses that we could have never conceived of for that reason. And so it can sound like dirty marketing or it can sound like, uh, or it could be something else. But for us, that was kind of important. Um, I would say another thing for us is like how children sort of come to our work I, th- I find really fascinating so um, like with the Ragdale project uh, kid, some kids walked by and just started loving on these cushions that we made these giant cushions and they just like couldn't get enough of it it was like going to a carnival for them and it kind of reinforces like how we want there to be this initial read that a kid has uh, that oh it's playful like we can move it around um, but that there be layers beyond that um, whether or not people want to know about it or not doesn't matter but that there be that kind of initial understanding and, and I think it's so cliche to like say oh no, kids like it but <laughs> but there is something kind of profound yeah. about it too like it is it is cool to, like and I yeah I, kids I, are brutally honest is like one they thing. are really helps, yeah, yeah. you know um, they will tell you when they're disinterested. Right, right. right. It's, a, yeah. it's an interesting problem uh, or a problem of scale too, yeah. which is that, which is that your your work is often at this um, kind of pop up yeah. exhibition scale, temporary right. scale. But that that scale actually makes it um, uh, it gives children accessibility to right. the work, right? Because it's something that's at their scale right. or um, kind of yeah, smaller groups of people. It's not. Right. Uh, huge buildings which are having to respond to thousands of users per day, right? You right. can really focus on a kind of individual experience of the architecture. Right, which is something right now that our practice is kind of trying to figure out because so much of our work is about that and we're the only next level, like you can either do pop-up stuff, but you can't really make a practice on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next level of being able to do that is firms like SOM or something where they're you know coming up with plans and, and there's opportunities for that kind of stuff. And so we're trying to find niches within which we can work that we can grow our practice but also still kind of do that stuff and that's i think the next challenge Mm -hmm. for us 
Another thing I was thinking when you were talking about the Instagram and how that operates in architecture today, which I think is an interesting topic, um, on um, on OMA's current website, they they have, of course, the professional photo- uh, photographs of their projects. And then if you scroll down to each project, they actually crowdsource and, and mm. any anyone who has hashtagged that, the name of that building will also appear, which mm. often leads to just very unflattering photos of the building yeah, because right. they're, they're amateur photos and they're and bad light. And right. someone's posing in front of it, right. so, but like, those are juxtaposed against the exactly <laughs> against the professional. And in a weird way, it's kind of, it's kind of refreshing to see an architect say, "Oh, we can also look at the work through the lens right. of all these people. It doesn't have to be only our professional photographers." Right. Sometimes we we get so um, into the curated image and the photoshopped image right. of a of a final project, and I. I find their kind of radical transparency in a way, even though it's yeah. it's it's on the internet for everyone to find these right. <laughs> a million right. photos of their buildings. But I thought that's just an interesting um, kind of point of right. of saying uh, a different way to talk about your own work. Yeah, so like the Van- or Vancouver project um, became the subject of a pretty harsh smear campaign because the... Um, the on the, the they closed down this Robson Street in Vancouver or they did during the summer. Ours was the last time they did it um, because the retailers along that street didn't like the fact that it was being closed down. Which uh, this train uh, route it, it it got in the way of this train route and everything. And so the retail association got together and talked about how the project was housing homeless people. Um, so readily and that it was a real failure of the design that because homeless people were able to take part, you know, to participate in the thing. And, and so what really is a kind of urban and policy problem that the city is having got put on this like temporary design project. And so this unintended use and people were photographing it in those terms, um, like people, like people they saw as undesirable uses for the thing kind of taking it over. And I guess there, you know, there probably were design, our design decisions of it that allowed that to happen more easily. But I guess what our hope would be that maybe it could open up dialogue about the way that, you know, homeless people are treated in in Vancouver, but it didn't become that. It became this kind of like failure of public art project uh, kind of campaign. And I don't know. I, I, that was just another kind of example of like how public image and, and curated image and things misalign or get co-opted. Sometimes your work is referred to as postmodern, or like that you're somehow put in that yeah. category, and you have a very strong adverse reaction to it. And I'm just, I'm curious if is there another term? Because I, I agree, I don't believe that. I don't yeah. think that your work is postmodern. Right. But but I also know that again, sometimes we can't control the way that people perceive our work. And right. so I'm curious, is there a term that you would like to replace that with when or when when people ask you that, like? Right. It, are there other characteristics that you think make it um, not of that group or that type of work? I mean, I could state differences. I mean, I think I just think calling it postmodern is to just like say it's been done and that you're capping it at you're you're using an old category to describe 
things that are happening in a completely new context and in different ways. And, and it's just a way for people to dismiss it outright because it's already been done in some form. And I don't think any people that are dealing with, you know, referentiality and history, like those things have to be lumped into something that was happening that, I mean, I think, no, I should probably have a better term. Like, um, I mean, post-digital comes out a lot and like that seems like a useful term because it's it's post something it's of I, our moment it's of our moment you know but and it's but i don't think that i mean that's too broad i think like i think everything but also postmodern is really broad like you could say everything being done right now is postmodern because it's it's we're actively r- wrestling with how how it's read, you know, and like, and ever since you've realized there's a break between the sign and, and the signifier, that's like, you're postmodern, like you, you can't go back, right? Yeah. So I guess I just get frustrated that, yeah, it's like, it's a way of, it's a dismissal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I appreciate postmodern work. Um, but I, I agree that we probably need a new term, but I don't know what that term would be. And I, I wish I could offer one and it's, mm-hmm. Place. Here we're back to the interpretation question, the yeah. uh, problem, right? Like right. the kind of your work has so much immediacy, and yeah. you know you could throw the word like cartoon or, right. or shape at it as right. a kind of um, it, it participates in um, this this discourse that's connected with this institution that you teach at, right. and it's um, it's known for um, at least in its reception being mm-hmm. like cool and quick and immediate. Although mm-hmm. I think people make the mistake to assume that the the production of it is also supposed to be right. quick and easy, and just I don't think it like is. It. Right. No. <laughs> it's just supposed to look like that. And, <laughs> right. that, and like building building a world is hard. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I would I would be curious to know, yeah, like what you would consider like your sensibilities or your value set, and um, how you wrestle with um, teaching at a place um, like UIC where. You're known for the iconography and the character, caricature yeah. and the immediacy. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it. And I think, yeah. like, I'd, I'd love to hear more about, like, the things that you think get overlooked in your work, the things that you, you know, feel like you, you uh, yeah, like, would be sensibilities that could be ascribed to the work outside of, like, those hmm. first-level interpretations. Right, right, right. Um, I would say as far as the postmodernism thing, like I think we're more optimistic than (laughs) postmodernism was. Um, I think that, um, I think we're also inclusive in a way that, um, it's for larger audiences, um, to, to get in on it. It's not just a kind of internal, it's not just autonomous internal architectural stuff. Like I think we are, we want that, but we also want a, a different to build audiences around it so it's like yeah. there's the architectural audience and then there's the public audience and that those maybe operate at different planes but they also operate like they all can participate in their own way into the thing and that's really important to us right um, that it does both like I, if it, it did only one of those we would not be happy that we yeah. want people to come up to it and you know, an architect could read one thing into it, but a public person, you know, a person of the public could read another thing into it. I wrote an essay that I didn't ever publish once <laughs> where I was talking about uh, world making through making things cool or, or not. And I, I came, I was, my, my answer in the end was the movie Brazil, 
where it creates a kind of um, like so in notes on the Doppler effect, they use acting styles as a means to talk about whether the actor is is in character or not. And so Robert De Niro is like the quintessential like hot actor. Like he's uh, and and they and in that essay, they were said that wasn't cool. That that's. Um, but in Brazil, like the, the contrast of his acting style in that movie, he's he's actually a, 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 a air conditioning repairman, so he's trying to make it cool. But like he's like <laughs> he's he goes in and he's like all like hot and bothered, and like and that in Brazil, there's like things from the past, and those things from the past become waypoints for us to be able to immerse ourselves in the world of the film. So, like, it's, a, it's set in the future, but there's things that we recognize and there's things that we can just kind of relate to yeah. uh, as means for us to project ourselves into that world. So it's not so foreign that we can't be a part of it. And I think that that happens in The Cool Project, that that's a world that we can't enter. Like, it's like Alf, like, came... Or, like, there's some alien that landed there and it's promising a world that's somewhere else, but we can't get into that world um, versus other strategies where um, it can be a little bit more inclusive of difference, which could allow for, I think, a little, a different type of engagement. That's really fascinating because in a film like Blade Runner, for example, like there is... There is new technologies that are incorporated, but there the the future is inevitably uncanny. It's right. not completely different. It's just that there's one kind of substitution. Right. So like um, someone might be in an apartment that looks like the present, but um, their most of their interactions are through a hologram. Right. But there's still something there to let you know that it's attached to um, like the future is attached to our present because things move very slowly right. and we can't really predict the future, but like right. this office looks like the same. It would look like, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's the uncanny thing is like, there's a 3d printer. And when we come back in like five to 10 years, like there definitely will not be any towers. There's right. like a couple towers left. Um, but it's this like, yeah, this kind of way in which the future or new propositions, uh, find a way to, kind of um, ingratiate themselves into the present to produce that effect. And I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I think we're, um, when someone talks about world making, I think that there's a kind of, there's an idea, again, to a a Gesamtkunstwerk where like you would design everything and everything would become unrecognizable and everything would be foreign. But the future is a kind of mediation between certain givens that let it be recognizable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then certain uh new elements that are alien and uncanny um i think is a is a a, you're providing a a reading which helps me make a lot more sense of Mm. the referential in your work i think too like um i got my first job because i could make renderings like when i (laughs) first started you know getting into the discipline or getting into the workforce renderings were difficult you know and so i really latched on to renderings as a means to uh represent architecture and when i went to grad school there and even now there's this kind of anti-rendering rhetoric that renderings are just the tool of um you know corporate right. representation of a pre of a already designed thing to a public and and that's all it can do and in our first projects, we very like we made render like we made 
hyper real renderings of impossible situations as a means to like bring the rendering, try to bring the rendering into be able to have a kind of critical discourse around it in, in the discipline. And so I think we were also trying to look for representations that did that too. Um, and so things like, like South Park or something like South Park creates a world through its representation strategy. But then there's a moment in one of the episodes where like guinea pigs come in and start eating the characters, right? But they're like live action guinea pigs. And, <laughs> and so like the world breaks down and like, yeah. I love that kind of like, and so I'm interested in cart- like rendering cartoon buildings in hyper real worlds or something like that kind of contrast of like when it just never leaves its own world, you never can under really, you can't understand the, the differences as much like it, you, it never comes into conflict. And so like, I think that that ability uh, to, to put conflict and confront the edges between where the world starts and where it stops, I think is as important as just like defining the, the look of the world or like, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of like having it stand alone in its own space. Stuart, thank you so much for speaking with us about the Monadnock building, architecture's complex relationship with public perception, and the many exciting projects your practice has participated in. For images of the Monadnock building or Stuart's office and his work, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Shulman.